And if you will, open your Bibles to the book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading in just a moment in verse 17. Again, uh, the book of Acts chapter 5. And we'll begin in verse 17 and read through the end of that chapter. I have used uh, the title for these most recent sermons, uh, The Gathering Storm, and very intentionally appealing uh, to the work of Winston Churchill in describing uh, the approach of World War II, that, that again, the world could see uh, the conflict coming upon them just as we can even now stand and not only see the clouds that indicate the storms are coming in the, uh, the realm of our weather, but I think any reasonably attuned observer can look at the cultural clouds of our day and see indeed that they are gathering and as they have done throughout the history of the world, the storms of evil, the, the storms of Satan himself, have broken time and time again upon the people of God. In other words, the book of Acts, while it tells us a great deal about uh, persecution, uh, it is not the, they are not the first people of God to have been persecuted. And so, as we read, as we study, as we think, not only are we to learn how the power of the gospel and the working of the Holy Spirit empowered uh, these men and these women to stand firm, to be bold in the, the face of great persecution. They remind us of the reality that the history of the church, the, the history of the last 2,000 years, has been a history of the people of God being persecuted, the, a history of the gospel of Jesus Christ being opposed. And again, I think that we are moving into a time of great darkness, not only in this country, I think it's throughout the world. Now, as I've said before, the church will not only survive, it will thrive no matter what. The gospel will remain true, and no matter who rules and reigns, from the seats of power in this world, the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate and the only true King. He is the Lord of Lords, and He is the King of Kings. And that is good news for us today, as it was good news for these apostles in those early days of the church. And so let's look this morning, begin, beginning in verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. 
Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them, they set before them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, you hear, you, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. And so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would do that which you have always done with your word, that you would bless it, that it would not return void, that, you, that it would accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it, that, again, the word preached would prompt faith, that you would so work in us, Lord, that we would respond in obedience, Lord, that we would respond in faith, Lord, that we would respond in repentance, and, again, that we would leave this place uh, to boldly stand, to boldly proclaim and lord give evidence give testimony to the great reality the great power of your gospel and we ask these things in jesus name amen as you read the book of acts you can't help but be even astounded amazed by the way in which god displays his power uh, through these most ordinary of men, that, that we can rightly be impressed with their courage, with their boldness, with their integrity, all of these things. But yet, the real star of the book of Acts, as is true of the entire Bible, is God Himself, His 
work through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the one that He sent to be with us until the day He returns, namely the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work in the church. He was in that early time in Jerusalem, and He is right now, right here in Clay, Alabama, and wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is being faithfully proclaimed. And so, the Spirit worked, and salvation was accomplished. Salvation was applied, and, and even miracles were done, were done. Even healings and, and all of these types of things that what gave authentication to the words that the apostles were preaching. And as I've suggested, there's really not the need for us to be authenticated or for our message to be authenticated. 2,000 years have done what? Proven time and time again that the gospel is true, and the gospel is powerful, and that Jesus is willing and He is able to save. So let's look at this this morning, beginning in verse 17. The apostles are arrested, the, the high priest and his uh, uh, cronies, those, uh, as we would say in Somerville, Georgia, those that were in cahoots with him, uh, they have uh, uh, formed a, a corrupt uh, alliance uh, that is going to uh, be hostile uh, to these apostles. They were hostile to Jesus. They're hostile to the message of the Gospels. Now, it is interesting, and I had I, a commentator pointed this out. I hadn't thought about it. But as you read the Gospels, particularly Luke's Gospel, it seems like the group that Jesus most often encounters as opposing Him are the Pharisees. Now that may very well be that they were more likely located out from Jerusalem in the more rural areas, and most notably in Galilee where Jesus came from. But here in Jerusalem, in which was the seat of the power of the Sadducees, we find they're coming to prominence. And, of course, they are threatened because Jesus and the apostles, the gospel is being spread right there on the premises from which they have exercised power and authority. And make sure we understand this. And profit. Okay? And profit. And so it is very much a threat to these Sadducees that they're pretty much in charge. They, they carry the, the weight in the, the, the Sanhedrin, this ruling uh, senate or council that had been given a lot of leeway uh, by uh, the Romans. And so they are hostile. The, uh, Luke describes for us there that they were filled with jealousy. The, the word there is the, the word zelu. Zelu. And it would, looks to me, just looking at the word, it's probably uh, one of the primitive basis of our word zealous. And so we could say this group was zealous and they were jealous. They were jealous and they zealously sought to de defend uh, their, their turf. That the gospel was a threat to everything that they had going on that was corrupt uh, with uh, that temple. These men, first and foremost, were spiritually dead. These Religious leaders, those that would make up this council, most particularly uh, these Sadducees. Remember, they were uh, those that uh, essentially de denied the supernatural. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in the resurrection. The only thing that they counted as authoritative was the Torah. And so they're kind of hard to categorize 
but to be sure, uh, they, uh, uh, they were entrenched in that they were uh, gaining great gain from their hold on the temple uh, precincts. And that's something that they were not going to allow to be threatened by a bunch of peasants uh, following a guy from uh, Galilee. And so, therefore, they could count the gospel, or they did count the gospel as foolishness. As Paul describes that the world looks at the gospel as foolishness, as natural men, unregenerate men. They did not understand the things of God. They, they were the scholars. They were the ones that knew the Word of God. But yet, they didn't know the God of the Word. As Jesus would say, as recorded in John 5, that you, that you think by searching the Scriptures diligently, that in them you shall find eternal life. But what? You do not know that it is those very Scriptures that you claim to know that point to me. Fundamental mistake that these religious leaders make. So they're, they're deceived and they're deceivers. They're, they're both. And we don't have time to look at Je uh, Jesus and His scathing indictment of the Pharisees, sometimes referred to as the seven woes. We looked at Luke's version of it a few weeks ago. Uh, Matthew 23 uh, has all seven of these indictments against these men uh, that were the leaders, that, that, that at some level had been entrusted uh, with God's truth, and they had perverted uh, the old uh, covenant. They, they were now opposing Jesus. And in fact, uh, they were oppressing the people both in a, in a financial sense by fleecing them with various uh, taxes and tithes there associated uh, with the temple, but spiritually oppressing them. Again, Jesus said that, you know, you, go, you travel over land and sea to make one proselyte. And yet in doing that, in bringing them into your realm... You make them what? Twice as much a son of hell. And so they were despicable and detestable people. They were those that suppressed the truth, as all unbelievers do. They happened to have religious truth. They actually had the, the, the Old Testament, and yet they took the very Word of God and suppressed the truth, suppressed the true one. As I suggest to you over and over again, there will be many that will stand in a building something like this and they will take a Bible and they will stand behind it and yet indeed they will be guilty of suppressing the truth even with an open Bible, even with a completed Bible of Old and New Testament. And so they suppressed the truth. They loved darkness more than light. They were hypocrites. They were vicious and they were violent even among themselves. You know, anytime that you have a corrupt, coalition. In other words, a group of people that get together, that come to a, an agreement about how to carry out dastardly deeds, you'll find that their corruption will begin to infect one another to the point that they do what? They betray one another. And so, uh, certainly the, the, the Sadducees and, and the, the entirety of the council, which would include the scribes and Pharisees, the, the, they, they were certainly vicious and violent toward those on the outside but they were vicious and violent toward each other. And just as an example, you don't have to look any further than, than modern politics, and you'll see uh, people uh, that, that, that will uh, align themselves for particular purposes and particular gains and then immediately turn upon each other. That's the nature of a fallen world. They were prideful, and fundamentally, they were fearful of losing that which was theirs. I keep 
alluding to and referring to uh, what they said at the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Recorded in John 11:48, of Jesus, if we let him, Jesus, go on like this, the Romans will come and take our place and our nation. So we've got a pretty good situation here. Uh, the Romans didn't really care if the nations, the places that they conquered, if they had some type of local, tribal-type religion, if that made them happy to, to do their deal in their temple uh, and made them you know, kind of happy, happy enough to pay taxes, then they let them go. And they were, they were quite pleased to say to those religious leaders, here, y'all take care of this, and y'all can kind of do what you want to. The main thing is what? Don't cause us any trouble. Don't, don't, let, don't let this be a place where there's some type of uprising and, and somebody goes back to Rome and says, we're not good, doing a good job. Just keep the peace. Don't rock the boat and y'all can handle it, the affairs within the temple any way uh, that you want to. And so the gospel was undermining their, their place and their, their position in, gaining, in profiting from uh, the temple. Certainly the gospel threatened their understanding of salvation. That is, whatever they were teaching was judged by the standards of the gospel as wrong. Nobody likes to be told they're wrong. I'll tell you right quick, I don't like it. Okay? Let me tell you something about you. You don't like it either, okay? Nobody likes to be told, no, you're wrong. And here are these men proclaiming the gospel, and whether saying it directly or saying it by inference, you're wrong about your understanding of a God and how He has worked in this world and what He has done to save. Therefore, you're guilty. You're guilty. And you are condemned. And so, they felt probably rightly threatened by this movement and, and the power of this particular message. And so they put them in jail. Interesting thing, it's called a public prison. Now, I don't know if that just means it was a prison that the public could see that they were incarcerated in or if it was some type of situation that was formally set apart uh, to hold prisoners. I, I couldn't really find a whole lot about that, but they were put in jail. And again, Jesus had said, "What the, the world will hate you. Just know that they hated me first. That, that blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And I am sure, as they once again were called uh, before uh, the council, that they reflected on the fact that Jesus had said, this is the way uh, that it will be. And then notice, too, that at least from what we see here, they go willingly. They, they submit uh, to uh, the arresting officers, and they allow themselves uh, to be placed in the, the jail. And so let's move forward into verse 19. Again, we see that very important, but very little word, but the authorities put them in prison. But God had another plan. Okay? All right? And so... They, they have experienced a miraculous deliverance from prison. This, there's three accounts in Acts of miraculous, miraculous deliverances from being in a prison or in 
a jail. Now, we're not to draw from that that any time that a believer is arrested or persecuted or uh, the law comes against them, that God automatically always sets them free because that's not the case. Two weeks from now, we will look at the, the, the story surrounding Stephen. I don't know why God chose to allow these apostles to run free for more years, and He chose what? To bring Stephen to death, to a violent death at the hands of of this very same group. But God, in His wisdom, chose to set them free. The way He does that is by the appearance of, the, of, of an angel of the Lord. Now, um, sometimes you see uh, a definite article before angel of the Lord, and that may reflect that it's actually a, a, a theophany or a Christophany. Uh, here, there's not the definite article, and so I would assume it is normatively an angel, a messenger uh, from God, uh, sent to deliver a particular message, sent to do a, a particular uh, deed there. And so the angel of uh, the Lord comes to them, and he opened the prison doors, and he brought them out. And he's going to give to them uh, particular uh, instructions as to what they are to do there in verse 20. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And so... The angelic messenger comes. He supernaturally sets him free. Presumably, he locks the door behind him when they leave. And so when the, they go to investigate, when they go to, to, to get the apostles from the jail, uh, the doors are once again, again locked, and the guards are in uh, their, their place. And so the instructions now, having been released from the prison, are to go back where you were, and do what you did. And notice here, in verse 20, all the words of this life may be reflective of what Jesus said in the Great Commission, teaching them all that I have commanded you. Teach the whole counsel of, of God. Point out the realities of the law and the fact that they are guilty, that they stand condemned before a holy God. There, there is no gospel apart from the reality of our guilt before God. There is no need of a gospel. There is no need of a Savior if we are not guilty men. And God has given us His law to indict, to prick the hearts and minds of the unbelieving world and let them know that indeed they have transgressed, they have violated the will and the law of God, and they are guilty and they are in danger of their own just condemnation. And then they spoke of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and also the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that He had made the ultimate, the final, the effective atonement, the effective sacrifice for their sin. And they would call them to faith and repentance, to, to respond to this. This is not just good information that you should have to improve your life. But this is information upon which you must act. Namely, you must repent and you must believe the truth of the gospel. You must believe that Jesus is the one that he claimed to be. And so they proclaimed this as instructed uh, there in the temple precincts. And so in verse 21, we see the discovery by 
the counsel of the empty cell. Looking there once again in verse 21. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and they sent to the prison to have them brought. So they don't know what's going on. They expect the prisoners to be there. That would be the, the normal thing. And, and they go to the prison. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So what do you do? Well, what they did is they returned and said, we can't find those guys. And, and I couldn't. Now this, and I was laughing this week. I know all of my sermon illustrations are archaic. So Google this. But it, it, it really kind of reminded me of, of, of what we would have called growing up a Keystone Cops routine. The Keystone Cops were these uh, actors that were in silent films and they were just did just goofy stuff and, and they were just incompetent police officers in various types of, of roles and skits. And so it just reminds me that these guys, we went, we, we went where you told us to go and they weren't there. And, I, and I, I can just imagine how the council uh, respond, would have responded. What, did you even go to the right place? Do you even know what you're doing? And then, well, if it is true, who are the incompetents that we left in charge of, uh, of the jail? And so, we find there then, in verse 25, and someone came and told them, Look! The men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Wow. What courage, what boldness. They didn't run and hide. They stood and proclaimed, and they proclaimed the truth without compromise. One of the things that I think we have to be careful of is sometimes we can call it, you know, kind of metaphorically say, we try to round off the edges to keep from upsetting people. We try to round off the edges of God's truth. And in that we do a great disservice. That we need to stand and proclaim. We need to rightly divide. We need to cut it straight. We need to present the truth of the law, the guilt of all men before a holy God. And the truth of a gospel through which God saves those guilty men from uh, their, their sins. And so finding them, standing and, and teaching, instructing uh, the people. The captain of the guard, the, the, uh, the man that we mentioned last week is kind of the temple sheriff or temple chief of police. They went and got them. But notice there at the end of 26, not by force, they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Now remember, there's already thousands there in Jerusalem, that have aligned themselves with the apostles. They have believed the gospel message. They've even been baptized and, and brought into uh, the church. And so uh, there, there are lots of people. And the Sadducees did not want there to be some great upheaval, some great disturbance. Why? Well, number one, they might kill them. Or number two, go to the Roman authorities and say, those Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they've lost control. And if they had, the Roman soldiers would have quickly descended on the temple and put whatever unrest there was to bed and again taken control 
of their profit center, their power center, from the Sadducees. And so, again, they were trying to uh, finesse this thing uh, just a little bit. They wanted to shut these guys down once and for all without keeping a riot, or starting a riot among those who were hearing and believing uh, this message. And so they are brought uh, before uh, the council, and they go before them willingly again. And I, I have to think, rather than say, no, we're not going with you. We're not, we're not going to go back through this kangaroo court. So, you know, let's just, let's just have a riot right here. Let's just fight this thing out right here, right now. I truly believe they wanted to go back. And they wanted to bear witness, both for the sake of the gospel and the hope of conversion, but also to, to prove that they were not guilty of any crime. And that the gospel should be proclaimed there and then without hindrance and interference from uh, the Sanhedrin. I'm not even sure. I would say at this point in history, the Sanhedrin... It's not, not in any shape, form, or fashion even a legitimate authority over the temple grounds as far as God is concerned. Now, as far as Rome is concerned, that is a different matter. Uh, they had assigned that uh, to them. And so the disciples come, and we see in verse uh, 27, they're going to stand before the council. And I note, again, we've seen this before. Notice the high priest in verse 27 is going to question him. It's not a question, it's a statement. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. So, first of all, we, we have demanded and we have threatened that you must no longer preach and teach in the name of Jesus Christ. And you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching, certainly hyperbole, but you've been doing this. A lot of people have heard you. A lot of people are believing it. This, the gospel is having its impact. And we feel the threat of that impact. Notice here too in verse 28, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. If you'll remember when Jesus stood before Pilate and Pilate wanted to release Jesus and say, I, I really don't find a basis for your, your charges against him. That, that I, don't, I don't see that he's guilty of any crime. and he, he should go free. And those religious leaders stood before Pilate and said, His blood be on us and our children. It's kind of, kind of interesting here. Well, you're just trying to make us guilty of, of the death of this Jesus. And they didn't back down. You are. You are guilty of crucifying the promised Son of David. And so let's look here at how, uh, says Peter and the apostles, they answer verse uh, 29 first. Now I think there's probably four things. You could probably count them a little differently, but let me group them this way. In the response of the disciples beginning uh, there in verse 29, first and foremost, we must obey God rather than men. That is a, an overarching, that's an undergirding, principle. That's foundation, foundational to the Christian, foundational to the church. Jesus is Lord. There are no lords above Him. There are no allegiances that, that triumph uh, over our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lordship of Jesus Christ informs and transcends anything 
in everything that we do. If you have an opinion that's contrary to the opinion of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are wrong and you're in sin. Was that clear enough? Does anybody that didn't understand that? You know, communication is very difficult. Okay? Do you understand that if your opinion is contrary to what is revealed in the Word of God, you're wrong? Okay? So, so God before men. God's, God's will is triumphant. God's will has the final say in what we do, what we don't do. Now, he goes beyond that. And I'm going to come back to this for just a, a moment. But let me move forward. Verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. Both raised Him up in the sense of the incarnation and sent Him into the world and raised Him up as a man to go around and preach and to teach and to heal. God raised Him up. that He was God's ordained man. He was the God-man. He was the promised Messiah. And so God raised up Jesus. The, the very God that you claim you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you killed Him by hanging Him on a tree. They've heard this a few times before. They're probably getting a little tired of hearing this. But it is true. They killed Him. They killed Him. It, it was according to your wicked plan, to, according to, to your, your corruption, your internal corruption and your external corruption, that you killed the one that God ordained, that, the God, that God had sent into the world, the very Son of God. But that's not the final say. You killed Him. Verse 31, And God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior. You did the wicked deed, but God has trumped and triumphed over your wickedness by raising His Son from the dead. And not only raising Him from the dead, they understood this language. He has been raised to the right hand, to the exalted position of authority, that He is indeed the Son of Man, the One who is the rightful heir of all things. You killed Him. You're guilty of killing God's chosen One. But God has superseded he has triumphed over your wickedness. And He has raised, and not only raised, but He has exalted His Son. And so we are here to tell you about this because God did this to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. That we proclaim this message for the sake of your salvation, for the sake of your coming to a saved knowledge of what the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has accomplished in His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. I don't know if this is what's going on in verse 32. It could be. Many times uh, the commentators make a big deal of, of the three witnesses, the standard of three witnesses uh, that's given under the Old Testament. And so we have, they say, we are witnesses one witness, we are the apostles. A second witness, the Holy Spirit is a witness to the truthfulness of this thing. And those who obey Him are the third witness to the truth and the power of that which we are saying. That is, I have, I have uh, proved and I have accomplished the legal standard here for the vindication of the Lord Jesus Christ and for your guilt of killing Him, of murdering Him. Now let me return for just a moment 
and say a word about this God before men. And I've told you, there are many things that these last couple of years have stretched and challenged me on. And I've said it this way, as long as the government does not insist that you disobey God or prohibit you from obeying God, then our default setting should be that we should obey the governing authorities. And that's, that's a pretty good place to start. But as we have seen, the governments, various governments, local, state, federal governments, involve themselves in so many areas. We are ha- going to have to be far more discerning as to uh, what we yield ourselves to. I, I mentioned uh, last week that a friend asked me, would I ever church, shut the church down again? And I said, I would not make a carved in stone, set in concrete kind of statement. Possibly, perhaps, maybe. Might, there might be some occasion. But knowing what I know now, I would have never shut the church down two years ago. That I think that, and, and, and in my opinion, I'm not saying COVID wasn't bad. We've all lost loved ones due to COVID. It was a terrible disease. It still is. But I believe the government was doing a test run on how to control people, particularly how to, to subvert, how to frustrate the church. And the church is an organization under the mandate to do what? Gather. 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 And so we need to be well informed about these things. Uh, Usually, when we speak of authority, uh, we speak of three realms of authority. That God has established the home with the husband, the man, uh, as the head of that home. We speak of the church in which God has established pastors and elders to to lead uh, the, the church. And then He has established a civil realm and given authority to them in a certain realm. And those are distinct and they are separate. Now, to be sure, at times, even I would say, maybe they should overlap. If there was a husband violently abusing his wife, I would say, I would hope the civil authorities would step in. Now, if it's a church matter, I would hope the church would step in before the civil authorities step in. But to be sure, I would say that that would be a place that, that, that the government should step in. But here, here's the problem that I see going forward, particularly when it comes to parent-child rights and authority. Now, we would, none of us would ever desire a child be, be harmed or be abused, right? I mean, we can all agree parents should not abuse their children. But I can imagine this scenario. Your child is at a public playground or at a public school, and his friend begins to tell him about, hey, I live with my two daddies or my two mamas. Everybody got the picture? And your child responds, well, we've talked about that in our house, and the Bible says that type of thing is sin. And that child goes running home and tells his two daddies or his two mamas, and the two daddies and the two mamas run to the school board and the teachers, and they run to the police department, and all of a sudden somebody's knocking on that parent's door. We're here to investigate what's going on in this home. Are you teaching these children that... An arrangement in which there are two men living together or two women to get, living together in supposed 
marriage, and I use that in scare quotes, is there's something wrong with that, that, there, that that's sin? And you say, yes, sir, and, or that I am teaching that because that's what the Bible teaches it. I can perceive, I can, I can see a day that they would threaten and possibly take those children out of your home because you're doing harm to them. You're abusing those children. Do you see, do you see what I'm saying? And I see that day as coming. And we've already seen threats of that type thing uh, going on. That the, the government does not need to transgress into uh, the business of the church or the home except in the, I would say, the most extreme circumstances. But even granting that. Remember what I said about systems? See, the Old Testament system was a great system. God gave it for the good of the nation of Israel. So it was good, but corrupt men ran it. And no system, no matter how good, when corrupt men run it, will be turned upon itself and upon its citizens. And I fear that we're headed uh, towards that. I'm not going to have time to, to get into this today, but I was reminded of this little volume, just a small little pamphlet here. Written by Wayne Grudem. Y'all have heard his name many times. I've recommended his systematic theology. He wrote a book called Politics According to the Bible. And he surveys five, what he calls five wrong views. It's kind of interesting. That the government should compel religion. Well, the church has tried that. It didn't really work very well, okay? So we say that's wrong. Government should exclude religion. Well, we've certainly seen that type of thing. That's wrong. All government is evil and demonic. Well, I'm close there, but we'll, we'll, we'll move there. But it, it is instituted by God. The view, and this would include men such as John MacArthur. In fact, in the chapter, he cites MacArthur. And I think MacArthur's come back and said, maybe I should have uh, had a little different opinion. Do evangelism, not politics. Now, folks, that is our ultimate goal, is to do evangelism. First and foremost. But I would submit to you that in preaching the whole counsel of God that we're going to have something to say about what goes on in the culture. And then the, the fifth thing he says that's wrong is to do politics and not evangelism. Of course, we would reject that. He says this, the better solution is for significant Christian influence on the government. And that's what I believe. I believe Christians should have significant say in what the government does and what the government doesn't do. Let me give you an example real quickly. I believe abortion is a sin. I believe it is murder. I believe it should be illegal. I believe the government should establish laws that says to kill an unborn baby is a crime. Okay? Does everybody understand what I'm saying? Now, I believe that is exactly what the Bible teaches about that matter. And folks, if it doesn't, if I'm wrong, if that's not what the Bible teaches, y'all really need to find another preacher because I ain't got a clue about what anything else the Bible says. Okay? I'm just, you might as well think that everything else is wrong. Okay? But that is sin, and we must speak out, and we must do what we can to protect unborn life. But here's where we're, we're going. It's not that we're afraid so much, of course this could come, of being forced to have an abortion, as they did in China a few years ago. Of course, they've realized how wrong the policy was in China. That would be forced to have an abortion, but we could be penalized and persecuted 
for saying abortion is evil, it's wrong, it's a sin. Now I saw an article this week where 25 FBI agents came to a home of a Roman Catholic who had been with his family, kind of trying to minister and counsel at an abortion clinic, I believe in Pennsylvania. And one of the abortionists was very rude and vile and vulgar to this man's child. They got into kind of a minor confrontation, and it, it, the, the man, I believe, was accused of pushing or something the, the abortion guy out of the way. There was, uh, I believe, a, a lawsuit which was dismissed, but now the FBI has come and raided this man's home, taking him away in handcuffs in front of his children for violating some kind of federal law about access and reproductive rights. Okay? Now that's where we are. That's where we are as a society. Now, now my point, and let me get on down. I have to stand here and tell you abortion is sin. It should be illegal. It should be wrong. Well, you can't legislate morality. Every stinking law on the book is a statement, is a reflection of somebody's morality. The question is whose morality is going to be reflected in the laws. It is not just my opinion that abortion is a sin. It is the Word of God. It doesn't matter what I think about anything at the end of the day, but it does matter what God says about everything. And so why can I stand and stand in the public arena and say this is wrong? It should be a crime. It's a sin. Well, Tim, that's just your opinion, and you don't understand. And yada, 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 yada. No, it's not my opinion. This is the Word of God. It is non-negotiable. And so we must stand on biblical principles and seek to have the government, the politics, the policies, the law of our land reflect biblical principles. I, I ran across uh, this this week, and I, I'm kind of sometimes a little bit concerned about some of these groups, but one of the, one of the groups that's out there, big pro-family group, some of their membership has published a book. I'm not, I'm not saying the book's good, okay? It may not be, but the title is right on. It's called God's Blueprint for Life, Liberty and Property, a Bible Study on the Ten Commandments. In other words, how do we live and how do we try to get others to have a good life? It is living in a society, in a culture, that their principles, their laws are defined by they're governed by the law of God. Okay? That's not a theocracy. It, it, it is not theonomy. It's not dominion theory. It's just saying that we should have significant influence, not on our opinions, but on the Word of God in the culture. That's what I believe. And so, we must speak out. Or as Al Mohler wrote a few years ago, we cannot be silent. We cannot be silent when they bring perverse materials into, into schools. Uh, just this past couple of weeks, Louisville, Kentucky, public schools, they had a big brouhaha over a, a moral progressive book that they wanted in the library that in, if, if that kind of literature had been presented to a child when I was growing up in beautiful Somerville, Georgia, the presenter of such offensive material would have gotten the stuffing beat out of him by some irate parent. 
Now some of it, listen, some of this stuff is just absurd. Okay, it's just absolutely absurd that they want to do this. And I'm saying that we must speak out. We must stand firm. And at times, we're going to invite the, not only the ridicule, but the anger and the persecution of the people of our culture. I think that we're at that place. And so, we must stand and speak according to our convictions. Having said that, okay, let's get back to the text. When they heard this, they were enraged. Imagine that. Imagine a bunch of unbelievers being upset about the truth. It's never happened before. It really doesn't happen very often now, does it? Okay. So, they wanted to kill them. That's a good way to put those, shut those guys up. Okay? They wanted to kill them, but we find the, the counsel of a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel. He may have even been the grandson of Hillel, and he was certainly the teacher of the Apostle Paul. And he offers a particular advice. Basically, if this is of God, you're not going to stop it. If it's not of God, it'll burn itself out on its own, giving some historical examples uh, there as to the prudence of this. Uh, some people think this is a fairly benevolent course suggested by Gamaliel. Others are not quite so charitable uh, toward him. I'll simply say this is just the way it was handled, uh, that they were beaten, and this wasn't just a benign spanking. It was probably that uh, 40 less one type of beating that would have been a brutal, brutal uh, experience. Uh, for these uh, disciples. But we find in verse 41 and 42, the apostles rejoice and proclaim the gospel. After having been beaten, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name, for the name. I can't even, I have a hard time getting my brain around that. They, having been beaten, having been brutalized, they could rejoice. Why? Because the gospel is true. That, 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 that they could share in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and maybe, perhaps, and that they realized that our courage, that our boldness in this moment would for 2,000 years rever reverberate through all of history as a testimony to the truthfulness of the gospel. Josh reminded me of one of my favorite illustrations, uh, I guess it was last night, from Charles Colson about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think it's just an outstanding word. Chuck Colson said it this way, I know the resurrection is a fact, that it is true. And Watergate proved it to me. It's interesting. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured if that weren't true. Okay? Nobody dies and suffers for what they know to be a lie. Okay? And so Colson goes on to say, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. 
And I, some of you don't remember that, but that's, that's absolutely true. They couldn't keep a lie together for three weeks, and they had all the power in the world. These guys had nothing, and they maintained the truth because it was truth for 2,000 years. And I think those disciples, they celebrated that this will reverberate throughout all of history, that the gospel is true, that Jesus has been raised. Colson concludes, you're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie from 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Final word, thought this was appropriate from John Stott's commentary uh, on the passage. He says it this way, The devil has never given up the attempt to destroy the church by force. That's what we've been seeing, right? The devil working. The devil seeking to destroy internal, external assaults. Under Nero, A.D. 5468, Christians were imprisoned and executed including probably Paul and Peter. Domitian, 81 to 96, oppressed Christians who refused to pay him the divine honors he demanded. Under him, John was exiled to Patmos. Marcus Aurelius, from 161 to 180, believing that Christianity was dangerous and immoral, turned a blind eye to the severe local outbreaks of mob violence. Then in the 3rd century, what had so far been sporadic became systematic. Under Decius, A.D. 249-251, thousands died, including Fabian, Bishop of Rome, for refusing to sacrifice to the imperial name. The last persecuting emperor before the conversion of Constantine was Diocletian, A.D. 284-305. or He had issued four edicts which were intended to stamp out Christianity altogether. He ordered churches to be burned, scriptures to be confiscated, clergy to be tortured, and Christian civil service to be deprived of their citizenship, and if stubbornly unrepentant, executed. And I don't see those four things as very much of a stretch based on the trajectory we're seeing in our country today. Still today, especially in some Marxist, Hindu, and Muslim countries, the church is often harassed. But we need not fear for its survival. Tertullian, addressing the rulers of the Roman Empire, cried out, Kill us! Torture us! Condemn us! Grind us to dust! The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. Or as Bishop Festo Cavingeri said in February of 1979, on the second anniversary of the martyrdom of Archbishop Janani Luwam of Uganda, without bleeding... The church fails to bless. Persecution will refine the church, but not destroy it. Hear that. Persecution will refine the church, but will not destroy it. If it leads to prayer and praise, to an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God and the solidarity with Christ and His sufferings, however painful, it may even be welcome. What a wise word. Pray with me this morning. Father, we thank You for Your word to us. Your Word is truth. Your Word is powerful. It is indeed our hope for eternal salvation. God, I pray that we would be faithful to Your Word, to Your truth. God, that we would proclaim it. That we would not waver. That no matter the cost, God, that we would stand firm. We thank You that we're convinced of the truth of Your Word. We're convinced of the power of Your Holy Spirit working in us and through us. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.